Military operations require large amounts of energy to train, move, and sustain forces, as well as to power weapons platforms. This energy is known as operational energy, and supplying it to frontline forces can be deadly. Between 2003 and 2007, U.S. forces suffered more than 3,000 casualties on resupply convoys in Iraq and Afghanistan, with about 50% of those coming on fuel resupply missions, according to an Army report. In 2007, that equated to one casualty for every 24 fuel resupply convoys in Afghanistan, and one for every 38 and a half in Iraq. Historically, resupply convoys have accounted for 10 to 12% of total Army casualties, with the majority of those involving the transport of fuel or water. Operational energy is expensive too. During the 2017 fiscal year, the U.S. military consumed more than 85 million barrels of fuel to power its ships, aircraft, combat vehicles, and contingency bases at a cost of nearly $8.2 billion. Given this high human toll and financial cost, new strategies are seeking to electrify the battlefield and reduce the reliance on fossil fuels. Last October, the Department of Defense released a climate plan and the U.S. Army followed with its own climate strategy in February. The Army is also expected to release an operational energy strategy by the end of the year. As work continues to implement these strategies and find new and innovative ways to power U.S. military forces, the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center is on the leading edge of these efforts. Erdic began its operational energy program in 2010, applying its 50 years of installation energy expertise to address a DOD objective to reduce the number of warfighter casualties incurred during fuel resupply operations. First, Erdic had to develop a method to gather operational energy data on existing electrical distribution equipment. The system developed is known as the Deployable Metering and Monitoring System, or DMMS. It allows the user to visualize the collected data within a computerized dashboard to enable energy-informed decisions. This research revealed that the diesel generators warfighters use in the field to provide power at contingency bases are typically loaded to only 32% of their rated capacity, an inefficiency that causes more fuel to be burned than is needed for power. To improve this, Erdic developed a hybrid system that stores unused energy produced by these generators. When the storage device is filled, the generator is switched off and the stored energy is used to provide the needed power. When the storage device is depleted, the generator switches back on and the cycle repeats. This greatly reduces the amount of time the generator is running and the amount of fuel needed to power it. Meanwhile, Erdic is teaming with Lockheed Martin on a one megawatt flow battery capable of storing 10 megawatt hours of energy and then powering critical parts of the installation as needed when the local grid is unavailable and when renewable energy sources cannot provide sufficient power. A prototype is currently being constructed for demonstration at Fort Carson, Colorado. Combining these efforts and others, Erdic continues to find new methods to power the force, including innovations in energy storage and power management. I'm Megan Holland, and with Chris Kiefer, this is The Power of Erdic. Our guest today is Tom Decker, Operational Energy Program Manager at Erdic's Construction Engineering Research Laboratory. We will talk with Tom about how Erdic is discovering innovative ways to provide operational energy that will decrease the logistics burden, 
lower the military's carbon footprint, and directly save lives and money. Hey, Tom, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Why is support for operational energy an Arctic priority? So as the Engineer Research Development Center, anytime troops cluster together, it becomes the engineer responsibility to provide utilities for it. And operational energy is one of those things that fit in that category, specifically how we power the remote locations during combat operations. You talked about remote locations, and, and we talked at the beginning of the show about the great risk that comes to warfighters from trying to resupply fuel during an operation. So now there's a new concept of the electrified battlefield. Can you explain what that is and what is Erdic's role in achieving some of those goals? So when we look at electrifying the battlefield, you know, how in our civilian world you're seeing more and more electric vehicles. Well, we're looking at that same concept for military vehicles. So the ability to have those electric vehicles on the battlefield as well helps us reduce the impact, the environmental impact of our military vehicles. But then it also extends our reach by using the fuels for other purposes as well. And the reason that that's a priority for ERDIC is, as I talked about, the responsibility of when we put multiple troops together and the utility responsibility that just sort of carries over into that mission, providing large-scale power is the engineer regiment's responsibility for the United States Army. When you talk about electric vehicles as part of this electrified battlefield, where you fit into that is providing ways to provide the power that would power those electric vehicles. Is that correct? That would allow them to recharge and so forth? Yeah. So without the ability to recharge, the vehicles only go as far as they can go. And without having a, an outlet or a wall charger to plug into, we have to create the means to be able to make that recharge. And a lot of times, to sort of maintain our military operation, we need to be able to do that recharge on the move. So at Erdic, what we're looking at is how do we create the power or generate the power and then store that power to be able to take with the convoys on the move and then be able to recharge and continue mission. And just to drive the point home a little bit more for the listeners, when we're talking about operational energy, essentially it's energy that's away from an installation, right? So this is maybe at a contingency base. This is remote locations, you know, in the field, various scenarios like that. That is correct. So when we're looking at installations, they're tied back to a grid. So basically get power the same way we get at home. Well, if that's not an option, and a lot of times when that's not an option, we're using liquid fuel to put into it, generate to generate that power. So that brings in different other factors that go along with it. So when we look at the operational energy, we not only look at generating that fuel, but all those other factors as well. Along those same lines, there are multiple efforts to improve efficiencies in operational energy. How does Arctic fit into this effort and what is Arctic's niche in this field? Well, that's a lot of those other variables that I'm talking about. For example, when you run liquid fuel into a generator, those generators are designed to run at 90% or above capacity. So a generator running at 90 to 100% is where it runs the most efficient and it will last the longest time. 
a lot of times if we don't fully load those generators by turning on multiple generators and not fully using all their capabilities, those generators actually tear themselves up in a process called wet stacking. That's where they don't fully combust the fuel that's put in them, and then they sort of choke themselves out and shorten their life expectancy. But at the same time, it costs more fuel to be able to get less out of them. So by Erdic looking at energy storage, we allow those generators to run at max capacity and what's not used by the load goes into storage. And then when the storage is full, it's able to turn those generators off. Sure. How did Erdic come to be involved in operational energy? So a lot of it came back to the Erdic commander used to be the 249th Engineer Battalion commander, which was Colonel Kevin Wilson. And during his time as the battalion commander, I served under him as a prime power non-commissioned officer. And then he knew that I had got a commission and was coming up on the officer side and sort of brought me into the organization and tasked me to leverage the 50 years of experience we had on the installation side within Erdic and look at some of these problems that are facing the warfighter on the battlefield. And in terms of these problems, again, to explain kind of why this matters and why this is so important, I mean, I guess there's there's a lot of reasons it matters, right? I mean, in terms of we talked at the beginning about the risk to the warfighters of providing this energy, the cost of this, being more environmentally friendly. I mean, in the decision to start this program up, this was a pressing need facing the warfighter and, and still is. That's correct. So I believe you discussed it earlier when you looked at the number of casualties that we were taking just trying to resupply fuel to the battlefield. Well, when we look at those numbers, you know, you can't put a price tag on that. Mm -hmm. And then when we look at the cost of fuel, yeah, that cost goes way up. And when we look at the burden of delivering fuel where it's needed, especially when it's being used inefficiently in Iraq and Afghanistan, we were using four gallons of fuel for every one gallon that we actually needed. So basically that meant it took five gallons of fuel to do what one gallon should have done. Mm -hmm. Well, when we look at Africa, the intercontinent of Africa and the Arctic, that ratio is going up to 10 to one. So when we look at those things, yeah, there's a dollar figure that goes with it, but really the impact of the warfighter is more the ability to extend their reach, allow them to go further with the same amount of resupply, and then be able to stay on mission longer. Those things are the real warfighter impacts, even though the bifactors of that is cost and reduced casualties. Those things, by being able to improve our capabilities, allows us to bring our warfighters home from engagements earlier. Sure. How has your background strengthened this effort? So, as I mentioned before, I was a prime power non-commissioned officer. So, U.S. Army Prime Power School is part of the Army Corps of Engineers. And they do that for two reasons. One is the warfighter mission we're talking about right now, but also on the civil side, disaster relief and the Corps of Engineers mission to be able to power up after natural disasters is something that the Army Corps of Engineers directly supports FEMA on. And FEMA only gets engaged once the president makes it a priority for the U.S. So 
I had background coming from those two areas on the enlisted side and then from the officer side, being an engineer officer and understanding what those requests look like when they come in and ask engineers to manage the power and seeing how that happens on the battlefield from deployment experience allowed us to sort of engage in one of the key things that we're able to do from the Arctic team is we've been able to build an operational energy team that has over 130 years of military experience. And we have the ability to integrate these new technologies into the warfighter formations and give them products that actually make sense for the warfighter. Sure. I guess it helps kind of get away from theory a little bit. And, and like you said, look at both what's really needed and also what's really uh, realistic and practicable. Yeah, you know, we able to look at some technology and say, you know, that's a great technology, but it's not right for the warfighter. And some other technologies we look at is like, we took a piece of this and a piece of that, put those together. That's what we're really missing. Mm-hmm. And it gives us the ability to sort of get after that and realize that, you know, even though efficiency is great, sometimes efficiency is less important than reliability or safety to the soldier. You mentioned part of starting this, too, was building off, or of course, has a long history in providing installation energy. How has that helped this operational energy effort? How much are you all able to gain and benefit from that historic expertise on the installation side? It gives us the ability to cross back and forth to find the real impact and the best way to address both issues. So for right now, we're leading a project at Fort Carson, which is a a flow battery project. Mm -hmm. We were asked to lead that project because we had previous experience on a deployable flow battery. And then we're looking at what we're doing at the installation of Fort Carson and seeing if we can take that to some of our remote enduring camps where we're spending millions of dollars on liquid fuel and being able to gain those efficiencies we're gaining at Fort Carson's and those other areas as well. Sure. I want to take a deeper look at some of the individual efforts that you guys have been responsible for, starting with the deployable metering and monitoring system. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is and why it matters? Yeah, that's actually where we started our operational energy program. And the reason for it was when we started rolling up our sleeves to look at the problem, like, okay, well, let's get some data and start there. Well, we had no data. So deployable metering monitoring system gives us a means of collecting operational data. It's a plug-and-play system that warfighters don't have to fully understand the technology of. They basically open up the circuit, put the box down, the box collects all the data, sends it back to a dashboard. The dashboard pulls the information the user needs out, and it gives the ability to visualize that data so decisions can be made from that process. And you have test sites um, both at Searle and at Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri. Can you talk about what they allow you to do. What capabilities do they provide? So when I came into Erdic from active duty Army and started working with our great engineers and scientists, they just really, some of them didn't have a full understanding of what the military mission was because they never actually saw it or lived through it. So we built Erdic Ford Operating Base Laboratory at our campus in 
Champaign, Illinois at the Construction Engineer Research Lab. And that gives them that little forward operating base to look at and say, oh, okay, this is what we're talking about. And then we have the ability to do component level testing at that site and test out the theories that they have. And then we move that that equipment down to Cibatech, the Contency Base Integration Training Evaluation Center at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And we've got four full-time ERDIC employees that man that site. It's a thousand-man base camp that gives us the ability to have soldiers live, do their training there, insert technology into that training cycle, get feedback directly from those soldiers. And then we've got other engineer regiment schools that rotate through there, not just the engineer regiment, but the MP and the chemical schools as well. And the National Guard and Reserves do summer cycles through. We pass 24, over 24,000 soldiers through CBTEC each year. So that feedback is sort of key and gives us the ability to make sure the technology that we're going to send to the battlefield is the right technology. In, in terms of the ability to monitor energy data, how does this capability enable better informed energy decisions? I think the dashboard is really the key piece of that. You know, data is a great tool, but data without turning it into information is hard to use for the ordinary folks unless you have a background in it. So what our dashboard partnership with Pacific Northwest National Lab is part of the Department of Energy, that dashboard gives us the ability to provide visualization of the information. So being able to take the data, put it in a tool that can be consumed by anybody, and then that gives them the ability to make those energy-informed decisions. As you start with a deployable metering and monitoring system, and now you have this information that wasn't there before, one of the things that you discovered was that the tactical generators were often only being loaded at about 30% of their capacity. Talk about the hybrid system that Erdic developed in response to that and how it helps with that inefficiency. As we were talking about earlier, a generator is its happy place at 90 to 100% of its capacity. So if it's only running at 30% capacity, it's sort of killing itself, as I mentioned before, which leads to unplanned outage of power, which could be deadly to the warfighters on the battlefield. But then the ability to sort of keep that process going, take soldiers out of the fight, the ability to fuel all those generators at 30% capacity is the same requirement to do it at 100% capacity. Mm-hmm. And that's really what the hybrid does is the hybrid allows that generator to run at 100% capacity. And then what's not used by the load goes into storage. When the storage is full, it turns off the generator. Anytime we turn off a 60 kilowatt generator, we save 100 gallons of fuel a day. Mm-hmm. That's directly um, less resupply that's necessary. And, you know, it's all those things, not just the resupply, but those are soldiers that get returned to the to do other tasks. It gives us the ability to go further in between resupplies. So there's a lot of additional benefits besides just the amount of time between resupply. Yeah. In addition to impacting U.S. forces, these efforts have a much broader reach. Um, Tell us a little bit about your work with NATO and the United Nations. So we spoke a little bit about 
deployable meter monitoring system. So that concept was under the Obama administration. We were asked to support NATO with technology inserts. They chose the deployable meter monitoring system. We installed a meter monitoring system in Central African Republic. And from that work and that effort there, the United Nations made a enterprise solution from that effort. Now, from one location in the world, they monitor all their United Nations missions. And according to them, they're saving hundreds of millions of dollars a year based on that work with the United Nations. In addition to that, we've got current programs with NATO under the Science for Peace and Security. That effort's being led by the Canadians. So we looked at what the Canadians were doing, combined that with what we had done with DMMS and came up with a NATO metering monitoring solution. And through that effort, we've worked many different NATO exercises and prove the way they conduct their operations as well. You recently announced, and we've talked a little bit about the $17.5 million contract with Lockheed Martin on a flow battery prototype at Fort Carson. Can you explain to people who aren't familiar, what is a flow battery and how can it help with installation resilience? So we all got cell phones and we know we can go X amount of time before we have to recharge our cell phones. And as our cell phone gets older, the amount of time that we have to go between recharges go down. Well, with a flow battery, we don't have that degradation that we have with lithium. And the amount of lithium batteries that it would take creates a, a larger hazard than it does with a flow battery. What a flow battery does is it uses a fluid that can be electrically charged and discharged. And then it passes it through one way to charge it. And then when it passes it back through the other way, it discharges it. So what we're doing at Fort Carson is we're building a one megawatt battery with 10 megawatt hours of storage. So that means if we use the full one megawatt, it would last for 10 hours before it had to be recharged. Well, we don't always use things to all of the required capacity. So if we only use it to a half a megawatt, it would last for 20 hours. So that is sort of building that resiliency into Fort Carson's critical infrastructure. And then it also works with solar power that they already had there that extends the length of time that that solar power could provide power without the need of using the grid. If the grid was unavailable for any circumstance, then that flow battery would be able to engage in that effort. This work is being done at Fort Carson at an installation. And, and I know you talked about this a little bit already, but tell us about how some of those lessons can be learned to inform future operational energy initiatives and how you can take that and, and apply it to, again, more of these operational energy problems. Well, when we look at the enduring base camps that are spread out around the world for national security reasons, we have a lot of remote areas in the country of Djibouti, Africa. We've got a camp over there that uses more power than the actual country of Djibouti does. And if we're able to bring in a technology like a flow battery that has large-scale energy storage capabilities, what we can do is we can reduce the amount of spinning reserve, which spinning reserve is multiple generators that have to be on in case something happens to the one generator that is on. 
So by reducing that, we're saving hundreds to thousands of gallons an hour of fuel. And as we talked about before, it's not just the fuel that we're saving, but the requirements to get the fuel to those locations. So those impacts are much larger scale than what's at Fort Carson, but for all the same reasons. Mm -hmm. Who are some of the partners you've worked with on this effort? As you mentioned, the contract that we're talking about right now is awarded to Lockheed Martin, which is a major defense company. We work with a lot of small businesses as well. So we work with a group of different companies that look at it from the oil and gas industry. We look at companies that come from the battery industry. We bring those together and sometimes compare ideas. We work with the Department of Energy across multiple different labs with the Department of Energy. We work across the U.S. Department of Defense with all our sister services. We work in NATO, United Nations, as we talked about. We also work with academia. So we talked about our test site that we have already set up. We're also setting sites up in Half Moon Bay out in California, partnering with Stanford University. Um, we're setting up a test site in Fort Wayne, right, Alaska, partnering with our co-regions lab, part of ERDIC, but then also looking at the University of Alaska up there. So we do that. We uh, have existing work with the University of Texas in Austin as well. So across academia, across small business, we have a lot of different partners out there. We couldn't do it alone. How is it really uniquely situated to do this work? And building off that, you just mentioned the work with the Cold Regions Research Laboratory. Are there many cross-disciplinary partnerships with Arctic Laboratories involved with the work that you're doing? Well, I think that sort of answers both your questions is what makes Erdic unique and it's the combined effort that we we do definitely reach out for the cold weather region labs expertise when it comes to everything that's cold. How do we geospatially locate the things that we're doing? How do we environmentally look at the impacts? And then when we look at the military engineering side and GSL's ability to inform us and use some of their mechanisms they have in place to really tackle some of these bigger problems. It's cross-functional across the laboratories of what we do. And are there civil works applications? When we look at the civil works, that sort of falls more on the installation side. But then at the same time, there is the disaster relief side of that. And then when we look at some of the applications in these large enduring camps, they become very similar to civil works as well. Can you talk about when you're looking at flow batteries, how innovative, how revolutionary it is to use the flow battery? I mean, is this kind of a technology that is being used much now or is this kind of a cutting edge? You know, as we look at renewable energy sources, this is kind of a wave of the future sort of thing. So the actual concept of flow batteries have been around for a while. What's really changed in innovation has come into the electrolyte, which is the fluid that we talked about earlier that can be charged and discharged. Lockheed Martins actually has a patent on, on the electrolyte. They use the company that we're using for our deployable flow battery is Energy Storage Systems, and they have a patent on their electrolyte that can be turned from powder into a fluid um, by rehydrating it on site. 
So looking at the chemistry that's going into it is definitely innovation. And then the other side is just really the resiliency and the demand for the energy storage has sort of brought the technology back around because we're using more energy than we ever have before. We talked about electric vehicles, the radar systems, the integrated base defense systems, everything that we have is just sort of growing in a power requirement. And as those things grow, it grows the need to be able to have and store energy. On that point, what does the future hold in terms of operational energy and more energy efficient and resilient battlefields? It's a great question and it'll probably change tomorrow. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, as we look at it, we have different systems that we're looking at towards the future. One of the things that ERC's been tasked to do is look at larger power production. So as I mentioned earlier, the United States Army Prime Power, when we look at their mission is to be able to provide theater-level power support for the battlefield. That requires large power assets as well. How do we do that different than we have in the past? A lot of these things we just don't know. I do see hybrid continuing to grow in, in efforts and be introduced because There's a lot of people talking about microgrids, but microgrids without storage aren't that much more efficient than what we have. So by being able to add energy storage into the things that we're doing, it gives us the ability to shut off that spinning reserve that I was talking about. And that's where our advantages come from. And then making sure that it's solutions that we can transport to where we need it is definitely the the immediate things that we have to look at. Who knows what tomorrow brings? One of the things on those lines that I thought was interesting when we talked the other day before the podcast is that you talked about the fact that a lot of times you're kind of lacking hard requirements, maybe because the warfighter doesn't fully understand the art of the possible or know even what to ask for, you know, what can be done. Can you talk more about that and maybe even what you see as the art of the possible? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And, you know, when we look at traditional, R&D from a military aspect is how do we make that next tank? How do we make that next fighter jet? And that's easy. Uh, if, If ours is not better than somebody else's, we need to make ours better. Or, you know, there's other things out there that are better and we see it from a civilian application. A lot of times nobody else does what we do when we look at deployment and, you know, we make a new weapons platform that requires new power. How do we get that additional power? If we can't see it someplace else, how do we ask for it if we don't know what to ask for? And that's really where where we're at is a lot of times if the lights are on, there's no questions asked about how we do it better because they don't actually see the other side of it. So what we're trying to do is use metering and monitoring to sort of show them that, you know, there's places that we can get better. And then from that metering and monitoring, then be able to get a requirement for metering and monitoring to say, the more information we got, the better we can make these decisions about what we need in the future. Yeah. How does this fit into multi-domain operations in Army modernization concepts? Well, it's how do we go down the road without our extension cords? Because that's the big thing is when we looked at one of the former Secretary of Defense came on board and said, we need to untether ourselves from the fuel requirement. Well, that fuel requirement is 
how we answer those questions is how do we go forward without this? And that's sort of how we, I think, have to address it is how do we do this better than we're currently doing it? Sure. And when you talk about untethering, I guess, as you decrease that fuel requirement, that just opens up a lot more in terms of mobility and, and reach. Is that correct? That's correct. So before with X amount of fuel, we could go from point A to B. Instead of going to A to B, we want to go to B or F or G and and get further than we did before with the same amount of supplies. And if we don't figure out how to do that, it means we have to stop longer. And basically, when we look at our different strategies, we know that we got to get better. We know that we need to be able to be on the move. And by looking at those things, that operational energy sort of gives us the ability to continue that mobility and movement. Perfect. Well, thanks, Tom. Thanks for joining us today and for this discussion. And thanks also for just all the work that you're doing and, and you and your team. I mean, as we talked about, I mean, this is directly impacting soldier safety and, and soldier mission effectiveness. And so thanks for the work you do. And thanks for taking the time to join us and explain it. Thanks for getting the word out there. Erdic continues to find innovative ways to provide operational energy to the warfighter, enabling the electrified battlefield to become more of a reality. By reducing the reliance on fuel resupply, Erdic's work will save lives and money and will allow commanders to shift manpower to other tasks needed to accomplish the mission and win the fight. It will also give units more flexibility to extend their operational reach and increase freedom of maneuver, enabling more successful multi-domain operations. And this effort will make the military more environmentally friendly, allowing it to reach energy efficiency goals set by the Department of Defense and the federal government. The Power of Arctic Podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Arctic on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Arctic podcast in all major podcast players. Please subscribe and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Visit powerofarcticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofarcticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all we have time for today. We'll see you next time.